Welcome to the Karuna Live podcast, an audio version of our free virtual Karuna Live events. Each month, a Karuna faculty member shares their knowledge and wisdom on a topic in which contemplative psychology is applied to daily life. The word Karuna means compassion in Sanskrit. Karuna training brings together a community of people who trust the wisdom of the world to awaken our compassionate hearts. We can learn to resource ourselves and integrate our experiences in a way that we can live a more empowered life. The world needs our compassion, health, and wisdom. We hope you enjoy this Karuna Live episode. Welcome to Shameless Embodiment. Um, this is a Karuna training program, a two-hour program. Um, we call these Introductions to Contemplative Psychology. So they're a chance to get to know more about what contemplative psychology is, the practices, and uh, more about the view. And um, Karuna training is a, a program. Some, somebody asked me actually yesterday, what is Karuna training? <laughs> it's like... It's a few different things. We have a formal curriculum that goes through a, a two or three year program. So that can be called Karuna training. Increasingly, we're doing more of these kinds of programs. So smaller offerings and one off retreats um, that are not an ongoing program as a way for people to find their way in if they're interested. Um, we never expect that you're necessarily going to do a longer program. You could continue to do these short things if you've been attending them, which I know some of you have. So we just invite you in. If you're brand new, if you have you did three years of training and you're coming back for something else, all of the whole range, folks are completely welcome. So we're really happy to have you here. Um, so we're going to be giving a couple uh, talks. We're going to do some meditation. Emma and I will each give a brief talk. We'll take a break, have some body awareness, and then do a practice together. If you're not able to stay for the whole time, we will record it. And so you can um, go back later. That recording will be shared with you as well. And you can go back later and do the practice, for instance. Or you could do it again if you wanted to. Does that, Emma, is that enough about Karuna training? I see. Yes. Okay. I think so. Would you introduce yourself, my dear? Sure. So I'm Emma. Uh, my pronouns are they, she. Um, I'm in San Diego. And I just finished the graduate uh, Karuna training program last spring um, and have been leading meditation groups for the last few years. And so very excited to be here for my first intro to Karuna with Miriam. Yay. So it's been so lovely to collaborate with you, Emma. Um, my name is Miriam Hall. I'm one of the lead faculty for Karuna training. I was a participant in the the first iteration of Karuna training as a formal cohort in North America. Karuna training has actually been going for 30 years in Europe and um, just came to North America in the last 10 years. So, um, yeah, I'm one of five faculty who lead most of the, the programs, along with folks like Emma, who help support. We do a lot of mentorship. That's how we grow the faculty here. Um, and because it's awesome to do things with other people. I use she, her pronouns. I live on um, Ho-Chunk land, which was ceded, but unfairly. Um, they call this place Dejope. The colonial name is Madison, Wisconsin. Um, and this is the first time I've done an ICP in a while. I do a fair amount of the shorter Karuna Live programs, the one hours, but I'm interested in doing these longer things. And I did a couple of shorter lives around embodiment and shame and gender and sexuality. So this is a thing that I feel really invested in and I know Emma is as well. So you're like, let's do this together. So we'll start with a brief uh, meditation, a chance to just settle in the guided meditation. Um, and this is true for the whole of this time together. You are completely welcome to have your camera on or off. Do not feel like if you're the only person with your camera off that you have to somehow have it on. You can turn your camera off. Totally okay. Um, and really find what's a comfortable position for you. So really finding if you need to lie down, if you want to be seated, standing, maybe moving gently is what feels best for you right now. 
Maybe I'm giving you choice paralysis, in which case try just sitting and see what arises. And I always like to start my meditation with a moment of grounding, really feeling into my seat and feet. Remembering a sense of connection with the earth itself. Even if you're a couple stories or many stories above. I'm feeling into the sense of space around us, me. If it's helpful, you can take a gentle look around your space. If you just sat down, your nervous system might be a little nervous. Taking a slow look around your space, touching a few objects can help your whole body to feel a bit more settled. We're really going to use this period of meditation as a chance to ground and rest. So continually feeling that sense of connection with the earth, whether that's through your seat, your feet, or your hands on the earth or on a surface that helps you to feel more grounded. And you have chosen to be here for a couple of hours, or maybe even, you know, one person can only be here for an hour of it. You've still chosen to be here for a period of time to be curious about yourself and your experience and each other and practice. So just letting that space in, that you've set aside this space and time. You don't have to do anything other than just be here. Your eyes can be open or closed, whatever helps you to contact a sense of space and feeling grounded. Your mind will drift away. You will go to grocery lists and to-dos, having arguments in your head, looking forward to something delightful. None of that is a problem. That's all really natural activity. Gently, really gently inviting yourself to come back to that sense of being grounded, connected, and also here in the space that you're in physically and also this Zoom space of practice together. Some of us find it hard to stay in our bodies and that's okay. That is okay. So in that case, maybe holding an object, even squeezing an object you can come back to that sensation for grounding. We'll take a few minutes in silence just to practice that, coming back to the sense of grounding and space, both, whatever way feels most available to you.
And closing our meditation, letting yourself know that whatever you experienced is completely okay. If you fell asleep, that's totally okay. If you were thinking the whole time, that's totally okay. You felt like you just had the best meditation ever and you've just become enlightened, also totally okay. And coming back to your environment, if your eyes have been closed, gently opening them. Maybe rotate your joints a little, especially if you've been still. Take a look around your space if you'd like, again, just to reorient. And um, uh, teaching, I just want to acknowledge the taking a look around your space. Orientation comes from um, Resma Menachem, who's one of my teachers. Um, teaches on somatic abolitionism, so working with race and uh, body awareness. So I'm going to put his name in the chat, just acknowledge that. And, and then we're going to do something that comes from another teacher of mine, Enkem Indefo, which is to actually look at each other and each other's names. So if someone doesn't have their video up, that's fine. Just looking at the names and remembering this too is now like we each have a, our, the room that we're in physically and we each have a Zoom portion of our room. And so getting oriented to each other. Some of you have never met each other before. This is a new space, a new configuration. And Encom has us do this, Encom runs a program called Resilience Toolkit and has us do this every time we come back into the group, especially from solo practice or small group. Like a reminder, we're changing and it's good to let your nervous system have a chance to adjust. Yeah. So Emma, I'm gonna pass it to you, my dear. Thanks, Miriam. Awesome. So <clears throat> I am recovering from COVID. So if I have a coughing fit or um, need to put myself on mute for a minute, that's what's going on there. Um, so I thought I would just start with kind of introducing myself again and saying a little bit about why I'm here, I guess, and why this a uh, course or class or time together is something that I care about and am passionate about. Um, so I'm trans non-binary and I use they, she pronouns. Um, and yeah, I grew up in a culture where there wasn't much representation of folks who weren't cis and straight. Um, and so it took me quite some time to even be able to articulate, um, you know, kind of how I identify and what my experience is and not even just articulate, but be comfortable with who I am, um, and not just be comfortable, but actually like myself. Right. Um, and contemplative practices have been a huge part of that. So yeah, I'm really excited to be here and to be able to um, learn from Miriam and also share with you guys some of my experience and um, contemplative meditation practices. So I use multiple pronouns and I think this is going to be very different from person to person. Um, and so for me, using multiple pronouns is that um, I don't really identify to either per se, I kind of feel both and all um, at the same time. But I know that my experience of gender is quite complex compared to the way that our society understands gender right now. Um, and I also recognize that I'm perceived as female. So, you know, please use whatever pronouns feel comfortable or natural to you. Um, but for me, I relate to all of them, even he, 
Um, but I think they is kind of a middle ground that uh, feels most natural to me. I prefer uh, neutral language. So like person and friend as opposed to a girl. Um, I won't be offended if you call me girl. That's okay. Um, but just know that's not necessarily how I experience myself. Um, so I think, you know, when I first started on my gender journey, um, you know, my experience was predominantly fear and anxiety and groundlessness, um, not being part of the trans binary, right? I don't identify as a trans male, um, you know, kind of made that whole experience a little bit more complex and just trying to make friends with all of the different aspects of who I am and what my experience is. Um, and, you know, when we're going through, or I guess, what do I want to say about that? Um, yeah, so I guess initially it was, you know, there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of uncertainty. I had really didn't know where I was going. I kind of didn't, you know, see what the next steps were. And it was really in learning to befriend myself and befriend my experience that all of a sudden, you know, my life started to open up a little bit more, things became a little bit lighter, more playful. Um, and how does that tie back to shameless embodiment, right? Um, and so I think, you know, when we're exploring uh, what does embodiment mean, what does shameless mean, what does shameless embodiment mean, right, we can kind of look towards the parts of our experience where we feel disconnected or shut down um, or disembodied, um, right? And we can start to explore these different layers um, of our experience. And I think it's important to also say that like when we start going inward, whatever our experience is, right? Whether we're cisgender or trans, um, straight or queer, um, right. We all have these internalized um, stories or um, things that we've taken from people that we love, our families, society, right. Kind of the dominant narrative that we've internalized. Um, and how can we start to undo that? How can we start to peel back those layers and feel the courage and feel the confidence to maybe step out into our lives in a way that um, doesn't necessarily fit with the dominant narrative? Um, and how I think at every step along that journey, right, there's new emotions and feelings and things to make friends with, um, uncover and kind of move through. Um, and so I think a lot of this journey is learning to hold both the confusion and the not knowing and the shame and the um, discomfort feel like for me, there was a feeling of being really alone in my experience, right? Like I looked out into my world and I didn't see people who I felt um, represented or reflected back how I felt. So there was a deep sense of loneliness. Um, and, you know, when, when we have a hard time being with those difficult emotions, right, we tend to shut down, we turn away. And sometimes that turning away or that shutting down can bring up feelings of shame. Um, right. And so I think for me, there was a lot of experience of shame around being in the closet and like needing to be out, like needing to be visible, um, you know, and then tr just exploring that, like where, where is that? What is that like for me? Right. And um, yeah, so I think, I guess where I was going on that is just the, the difficult emotions that can arise at every stage of the journey and wherever we find ourselves, um, you know, there's likely something there for us to explore. Um, and yeah, and that when we can actually turn towards these difficult experiences or the parts in us that we have a hard time embodying, um, or a hard time expressing or sharing with other people, 
um, that when we can turn towards that and make friends with it and allow ourselves to be and even delight in who we are and kind of our own expression and being, um, I think that's where the shameless embodiment comes from. We're able to really be with ourselves fully um, or more fully, <laughs> because as I said, it's like an ongoing journey, right? So each kind of step of the way is more uncovering and uh, more discovery. Um, and I don't think the shame goes away per se. And I and I think we could use a lot of different language for shame. Doesn't have to just be shame. I think it could be, um, like I said, just feelings of disconnection, feeling of um, you know, distance even maybe, or feeling alone, uh, whatever it is that, you know, is, is, uh, difficult for us to be with that the more we can kind of turn towards that and make friends with it, um, kind of the fruition of that, I guess, is a shameless embodiment. So I'm going to wrap it up there and, and pass it back to Miriam um, and yeah, thank you guys for letting me share that with you. Emma, can we see if there are any questions or reflections? Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Any, any questions or thoughts after Emma share? Thank you, Emma. I identify as both queer and cisgender and I'm a 46 year old cisgender woman. So in my queer life, since my mid teens, um, the language continually changes, which is, I think, part of what Emma's talking about, too, you know, in terms of what words that other people use, words that we use. It's also interesting that that language changes. Um, you know, words like non-binary weren't used in the 1990s when I came out or when my spouse, who identifies as genderqueer, which is the word that we were using then, or non-binary, came out. Um, so it's an interesting just to notice how the language changes. And I, I think especially for folks I know who are cisgender and heterosexual, that can be intimidating. <laughs> like, you know, can I keep up with the language and the things that are being used? And so what I really appreciate, Emma, about what you pointed out is like how important it is to just attend to individuals' experience. Like attend to and really be with someone where they are, um, less than like a sense of policing or trying to get things right. Um, and notice that our own experiences change all the time. And I, I wanted to speak to how that's especially, tr that's also still true for people who identify as cisgender and straight. <laughs> I think our experience of our bodies, our experience of our gender, our experience of our sexuality is actually far more nuanced than those words allow. Right. So everyone's experience of their gender or sexuality in their body, um, regardless of our situation, our identity, right, um, is going to be subject to a lot of different interpretations from other people. Karina, I loved how you highlighted that. And how do we give that back? How do we hand that back or, or not let it in? And then also, how do we embrace what is what is true for us, especially when we don't know? when we don't have language ourselves or we're not sure. Um, and I find this to be a place where, where if we can create the space for all of us can connect because we all have something around our bodies that other people have made up oversimplified stories about, whether it's around our size, our gender, our race, um, our cultural backgrounds, the environment that we're in so many different pieces in terms of this body that encounters other bodies. And that's part of what we want to work with today, which is to find a way to translate or transmute is a word that we use a lot in contemplative psychology, like take the basic confusion that's wrapped up in these oversimplified stories and let in the inherent complexity our identities are inherently complex. There's nothing simple about them. And, and that goes for all of the facets. So how can we allow the space in ourselves to keep exploring and also find ways to communicate that story to people who, who care? Um, my own journey with that ties to a couple different things that I wanted to highlight today. So one is that in, when, in my teen years, when I came out, I identified as bisexual. Um, 
I wasn't aware at that time, you know, as much as Emma said, like, I just didn't even know that other genders existed. I was in white, Midwestern, middle-class environment. So in, in modern times, so I didn't know that other cultures had other genders. I didn't know that people had expressed other things, even in my own culture. And then increasingly over the last 20 some years, um, both with my spouse's journey of going through three genders while we've been married and also through so many friendships and, and connections and allyship, I've really seen um, the complexity, right? The inherent complexity in us finding more language across all cultures to, to name a complexity that was already there. And one of the interesting pieces that my spouse's gender journey has played is made me look at my own sexuality, right? So this is something that comes up for people who are partners or spouses or even just close friends and family with people who are transgender or genderqueer or non-binary, somewhere in that spectrum. It's like, what does it mean if my spouse is identifying as male? What does it mean if my spouse is identifying as female? And now as my spouse is identifying as non-binary, genderqueer, using they, them pronouns, what does that mean about me, my sexuality? For me, I know that my sexuality hasn't changed, right? So queer is the word that I've come to use because it feels like a more umbrella term that can encompass all the ways that our, us in our monogamous relationship have interacted. Um, and also my sexuality beyond my marriage. So even though we're monogamous, I, I have a sexuality that's beyond just the relative relationship. Um, but also then just a, a bigger sense of understanding what it means to be cisgender, which is a huge gift that comes from being partnered to and friends with and allies with so many folks who don't identify as cisgender, so don't identify as the gender they were assigned at birth, that I'm, I get a lot of constriction and restriction put on me. Not as much, not as much restriction, I want to say, and constriction as folks who don't identify as cisgender, but I also feel a lot of a sense of this, what it is, this is what it is to be a woman. This is what it is to be bisexual. This is what it is to be, right, fill in the blanks. Like these are all the stories that are handed to me. And in addition, while Emma and I were preparing, I was realizing, oh, I also, part of my sexuality and my gender has also always been tied to my, my body and my weight, that I have always been overweight, right? I've always, whether I identify that way or not, that's how people have always, mainly doctors in the medical system, have always identified my body as overweight. And that has affected also my comfort in, do I feel feminine enough? Am I cute enough? I remember saying um, early on in, in my marriage to my spouse that I was cute, but not sexy. Like I had to write a story that like, that's, that's what I could be. I couldn't be beautiful, right? Yeah, thanks, and I'm feeling it too. I'm like, oof, ouch. Like there was a limitation on how I could compliment myself or be complimented or receive those things because of the shape of my body. And I just didn't, you know, looking in media and even looking at my relationships with other people, I didn't see other kind of fat bodies being together, certainly not in the media. And if they were, it was more of a comic representation, like Roseanne or something, right? Sort of there's something always to mock there rather than something to celebrate. And that's something that's changed a lot with kind of exploring ability and access and um, health at every size over the last 20 years. And even when things change, the external societal story changes. One of the things that doesn't always happen for us is that our internal story also changes and grows. So while it's true that having the language, having the stories, having the representation matters, right? Just like Emma was saying, I, didn't see that representation. That basically means I don't exist or I don't know what that would even look like. So it's powerful to have that representation. And we also need to engage in our own stories and see like, am I still holding on to these oversimplified stories that have been fed to me or that I've consumed or that I've even taken on to survive, right? Like sometimes we say, okay, fine. I'm gonna take on this simplified story to get by. And there's nothing wrong with that. So we want to 
what we want to do today together is really tap into our inherent complexity, like the inherent complexity of human beings as is, our identities, and how that shows up in our relationship to our bodies, um, sexuality, gender, all of those pieces. And in Karuna training, in contemplative psychology, we call that intrinsic health, basic sanity. So that's like going back to what's inherent and it's true, it's complex, it's real, is actually touching back into a fundamental sanity. Even though sometimes being, being our true complexity in a world that wants to box us in actually feels crazy making right? It's actually more sane. It's inherently sane to be real and authentic and complex and to be in situations where we can be that way. And that there's a healthiness in that complexity. There's a richness, there's an abundance in that complexity that is not true in the, the paucity of the simplified stories that other people tell about us and that we sometimes tell about ourselves. When we are able to be honest and be authentic and be real, which is not just, you know, truth, like true story here, right? Not always possible, not always possible in every way, in every environment. But when we can, when we have the courage for that, we can help set an example for someone else who is, who is like Emma was describing, like I've been describing, trying to find examples, like give me an example of where this actually shows up because I'm not going to find it. On, on television, I may not even find it on TikTok. Um, so give it, getting those chances to be able to do that. And at the same time, when that's not possible to not try not to shame ourselves for that, that there are times when we need to hold back our stories, our experiences, our complexity um, for safety out of survival or just out of habit. So and as I really appreciate it, Emma said it too, it's like an ongoing practice, right? So we're not talking about some state of like permanent shameless embodiment, like da-da, you've arrived, no more shame ever. Da-da. That's probably not going to happen. Can't promise that today. Probably not going to happen. And each time we're, I know, I was like, okay, I'm taking back my registration. <laughs> and each time we're able to experience a layer of shedding, right? We're able to let go of one of those stories that leaves more room for the real complexity to flex itself and expand and um, be able to be at least with ourselves and our loved ones to be who, who we thoroughly are and continue discovering who that is. So we want to kind of repeat that. So, so powerful. Um, my felt sense, and I got something healed actually when you said this, was like, when, when I can, we don't need to put this pressure on ourselves, but when we are able, which is not always the case, to have enough space for people's either misinterpretations of who we are or maybe mirror of part of us, but that's not the whole of us, right? So many different things, like when Emma said, you know, it's okay to use she and you're not going to be using, you're not going to be seeing the whole of me, but that's okay to name it if that's what you're experiencing, that when we can do that, it's not as triggering. Like when there's space to accommodate for that, when we're able to access that space, then it doesn't, what was the image you used? Like it doesn't actually strike our nerves as much. And I just got this image of like a field where it's like, here's my experience of myself where I have confidence in that experience. And here's your experience, which might like Venn diagram overlap a little bit with my experience, but isn't the whole thing. Yeah, because I think what came up for me was something you and I had been talking a little bit about before of like, feeling invisible versus like choosing to be invisible and how like in the trans experience or in my experience, right, the more often than not, I'm not seen, right? So the moments of being able to give grace or understanding uh, feels exhausting because it's every interaction versus like occasionally that happening. And I think Initially, when I became aware of that, it became like excruciating because every interaction just became this like, you know, blaring reminder that like, I move through the world without being seen. And like, how do you, 
yeah so I don't know I think there's an an element to that where it's like but but I also share in that experience where like the more comfortable I've become and more um secure I feel in my own identity and expression and with letting people in who are close to me or you know those moments of intimacy that are worthwhile you know it's like um those moments where other people or people that I am less close to or you know uh, just casual everyday interactions like it doesn't sting as much. It's just sort of like a recognition. And I think also in Karuna training, we talk a lot about like the moment as it is. And I know like I'm perceived as female, right? So there's this inherent, like, like I have not taken hormones, right? I have not gone through like a medical transition. And so like, I know that especially people who have known me or anyone who just perceives me, perceives me as cisgender. Maybe not. I don't, I mean, I don't know. I'm not in their brains, but this is my experience, right? <laughs> I guess I, I get she heard and, you know, referred to as a woman. Um, yeah. And so I think it it is interesting kind of that, that dynamic where like for me, it ha- it's every, every exchange and how challenging it can feel to give grace um, when it feels like it's every moment. Um, but then also the flip side being true of, you know, that the more that I do find, you know, my own, um, security in my identity and expression, um, the less it bothers me, I guess, or the less triggering it is. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. My God, the, the, the word masking is coming to mind, right? Um, which is now used a lot more, right? Talking about masking and autism and ADHD. So just to give give context, the person's share was about being cisgender, male, heterosexual, but feeling disembodied, disconnected from the body. And now realizing as, as an older person, how much of that was actually ADD and executive functioning and not being able to operate and then masking that. Mm-hmm. And how another intersection that we didn't explicitly name, but is absolutely a part of this, absolutely has to do with access and ability and has to do with how the world sees us based on our exterior behavior. And I'm starting to tear up because this is really, this is huge, right? This is another way in which the world tells a story that you are then trying to adapt, doing your best to adapt to fit the story that the world was telling that you wanted it to tell about you, right? And avoid the negative consequences, the other stories that they might tell, like you're always late for work or you're not as productive or I don't mean to get into, I don't want to get into triggering stories, right? But it's like, how can we adapt the story that's being told um, in order to to fit in and in order to, to pass, basically to mask? Thank you so much for naming that. And I could really feel how that also is tied to embodiment for sure. Absolutely. Including the brain science that now tells us this is actually to what my spouse has actually been going through ADHD and autism diagnosis and realizing in their forties that they have this and like, Oh, this, there's actually, this is normal considering the brain I have. Right. And so that's, that's something Emma and I actually talked about is the difference between nor normal and standard, right? All of these words that we use, like what's normal? Because somebody also mentioned in the chat, like, yeah, I just got diagnosed as an adult a few months ago and executive functioning is part of that with ADHD. Um, It's powerful to just like, we could obviously go to the dictionary. And for those of you who know me, that's like a standard thing for me to do is like, let's go word nerd about this and look up normal, standard, (laughs) average, right? (laughs) And play with those, which we could do. But I think it's really important to be curious about those, right? We even talk about like heteronormativity and sort of normalizing and standard behavior. But one of the things that Emma said that I really loved in our preparatory conversations was like a false standard, right? So there's a false, there's a standard, but it's actually false. (laughs) It's not really a standard, but it's what we put up there or what's upheld. And then, um, and then we even will make, like, we'll adapt to other false standards. Emma, would you say something about the, like, the false standard within the false standard? Because that was such a great 
expression of it? Do you remember what I'm talking about? Um, well, I don't know if I remember exactly how that conversation went, but I relate to a lot of what has been shared and also have ADHD and, you know, work in a job where I feel like I'm constantly trying to pretend that I'm normal (laughs) and like, you know, and, and how I just feel exhausted by that all the time. Um, you know, but yeah, I think that there is in different contexts and different, whether it's gender and sexuality or, uh, like neurodivergent quote unquote normal. Um, right. I think the dominant narrative sets this like precedent that, that this one expression is the default norm that everybody should kind of be. And if you fall somewhere outside of that, you know, somehow you're not normal or you're not, you know, or you're different or you're other or whatever. And how, like, I feel like, you know, there's a unconscious, like subtle striving to be that because one, I think there's like safety there, right? It's sort of like, for me, like if I hide my whatever experience in, in any, you know, facet, like it feels a little bit like, oh, I can just, you know, kind of get by, I can, you know, make this happen, I can be successful, I can, you know, achieve what I'm trying to achieve without um, raising suspicion or like being questioned or having to justify myself or explain myself or, um, you know, but I think, yeah, I guess just like that, that this idea of the norm or whatever the like, you know, thing is that we're trying to or I don't even know if we're all trying to be that, but just like that society tells us we should be or whatever. Um, It's just kind of a constructed, I mean, it's socially constructed, right? Based on patriarchy and heteronormativity and um, just sort of like the white male, straight, cisgender um, kind of archetype that is the most like quote unquote human right and even just looking at like politics and stuff like that that the further you move away from that right your like rights are then up for debate um but it's all constructed i don't know miriam if that actually touched on what you were beautiful but um, yeah that's beautiful and i think one of the things just one name one of the things is too just to hear from someone who actually is a straight white male to say like also not serving me so well like obviously in some ways it's serving you but also like neurodivergent still trying to strive in that situation and I think that's really powerful to name right that we're all um Resma Menicum talks about standards for being human so I love that you named that Emma right that it's not just that we're talking about you have rights and privileges it's actually like your proximity to those things including being able-bodied you know, having normal nor, neuro, neuro normativity, all of those things, the closer you are, the more access you're going to have and the, the less you have to justify. And we need to see the subtleties and feel into that because that's still going to damage. Nobody actually fits the standard is the thing. <laughs> Nobody actually does. And um, it's false. It's fake. And then when we try to adapt, so for me, I was thinking too, how when I came out as bisexual, I was then given a story or a script about what it means to be bisexual. And then I tried to adapt to that. And that didn't work so well, because guess what? That's not true either. And so then constantly adapting to like, what's the script that's being handed to me? And I think that example I was thinking of, Emma, though I love what you said was like, okay, so I'm, so I'm non-binary. So what's that script? Oh, wait, I don't, fit, or no, so I'm trans, but I don't fit the trans binary script, right? So it's like, I don't fit the heteronormative cisgender script. Okay, but there is a script for being transgender. Oh, wait, I don't fit that one either. So then, <laughs> right, so these are like all of the different ways in which we then try to adapt to what, you know, we could find a label and the labels can be helpful, but then they too can also be a simplified story, right? A restriction on, on who we are, right? So I'm transgender and I have ADHD. And what does that mean? Oh, wait, that doesn't match either. And so just allowing enough room for those things to help us understand things about ourselves 
and get some nuance, but also not limit our understanding of ourselves, right? Because then if we try to get into this other, not even other people's conceptions, but some abstract idea of what that means, we're, we're still dealing with a really limited sense of self. And it also feels like we're trying to fit ourselves into something versus allowing who we are to emerge. And I think that's like the embodiment piece, right? Where mm. like if we're like holding some idea of what it means to be X, Y, and Z, like, and then we're trying to fit ourselves into that, right? Like, I feel like for me, every time I've tried that, I end up contorted and <laughs> uncomfortable and, you know, uh, struggling in some degree versus like dropping that and just allowing myself to come forward. Right. Emergence, embodiments. I love that. I think yeah. we could save that. Like that's such a beautiful, so I'm just going to name the question for the recording or just name the, not even a question. It's like a, just an opening, which is um, when it might be easier, for instance, to shamelessly embody gender at work than ADHD at work. Like when, when it might be easier to shamelessly embody, let's just open it in a more general sense, right? For everybody who's like, to embody some part of ourselves, our race, our gender, our sexuality, then it would be another facet. Or maybe in some instance, wouldn't it as instance exist where the ADHD would be more shameless to embody than gender, right? So the relativity of all these pieces and the circumstances that we're in, woo, just like so juicy and actually really ties to the practice, I think, that we're about to do. All right, so we're going to do just a short five-minute body awareness practice um, to just help us kind of come into our bodies before we go into a little writing experiential. Um, so we're going to just explore uh, expansion and contraction and what that feels like for us. So uh, feel free to do this standing, sitting, laying down. Um, you can take whatever posture feels good for you, and you can even change it, explore it, um, kind of do whatever. So, you know, we're going to alternate. So take a moment to just feel into a sense of expansion and maybe like spread your fingers out wide, maybe even put your arms out wide, right? Make your physical being feel quite large, um, or maybe you just feel a sense of expansion internally, um, right? Kind of notice, um, but yeah, just take a moment to feel that expansion. And then we're going to go contraction, maybe, and bring your arms in tight, maybe clench your muscles, bring your body in small, Maybe crunch the muscles in your face and hunch down. And just feel what that sense of contraction feels like. You can notice it physically and in your mind. And if there's different emotions or internal experiences that arise, and then we're going to go back to expansion, again, spreading our arms out. Again, if you're laying down or sitting, feel free to change your position. Or if you're standing, you might feel like you want to lay down. And then we're going to go ahead back into contraction. So bringing yourself back in. Tightening muscles, maybe clenching, however you experience contraction. Maybe you move towards the floor in a fetal position. Maybe your legs are crossed. And when you're ready, we're just going to come back to sense of equilibrium. Maybe releasing that contraction, feeling a little bit of expansion and contraction at the same time. 
feeling our bodies and the ground below us. And to take a moment to ground back into the group. And I'm going to pass it over to Miriam for the other experiential. Yay. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it, especially MIU ending us in this kind of in-between space of like probably still some contraction and some expansion, which is more often where I am is like a little bit of both, right? Not One's not better than the other. They're just different and often mixed. Yeah, great. So we're going to um, have an experiential, which will be relatively short but if you don't we didn't ask you to get um writing or drawing materials before you came we could have asked you that before break but forgot to so if you don't have something on hand and, and this can be a piece of scrap paper this does not need to be your um, best painting materials but a notebook or a scrap paper pencil pen whatever you have kind of available in reach if you need to step away and go to your recycle bin for a moment that's fine too. And in case the idea of writing or drawing feels intimidating to you, we're just gonna do short, short spurts. So what Emma and I wanted to try was having an experiential where we um, play with this idea of um, the difference between these pre-written scripts, right? That we were talking about, like, this is what this looks like. This is what transgender looks like. This is what um, neurodivergent looks like this is what or even just this is what hetero you know heterosexuality looks like I don't fit that script I also don't fit the script of what transgender looks like I also don't in my case like I don't fit the script of heterosexual I don't fit the script of bisexual right I don't fit maybe it's multiple scripts I don't fit the, the you know cisgender white male script in the way that it's being handed to me and I also don't fit the neuronormative script so being curious, we've already talked about quite a few of these and people have given examples. Um, so hopefully that's not new at this point, but being curious about one or a couple of those scripts, those stories that are oversimplified that have been handed to you. Usually that's how it happens. We, we sometimes agree to go with them as we've talked about, either out of practicality or simplicity or, whatever, or survival, whatever reason. But we want to spend about five minutes drawing or writing about that though one or two of those simplified stories and scripts that we have struggled to try to fit where we haven't fit we've tried to fit in but it hasn't worked and we'll do that for five minutes and then we'll come back and try doing the opposite recognizing the more complex stories where if we include all of the pieces what would that actually look and feel like so you can make a word map, you can make a list, you can write paragraphs, you can just doodle, um, you can draw something. Let yourself take a moment to just feel in and from the body awareness that we just did, feeling the constriction, right? So what did it feel like to feel constricted? When has your identity felt constricted? Either that others have constricted it or you've constricted it to get by. So tuning into that, and we'll write for five minutes. You probably won't get everything down. Don't try to get it all down. Just get down a, a felt sense. And then we'll um, come back and do the, the inverse. And take a moment to just really acknowledge, notice how you're feeling in your body. After doing that, you might not be feeling your body at all. <laughs> That's fine, so notice that. That's as one of our teachers says, That's just information, just notice. I'm completely disembodied right now. That's okay. Notice any places of constriction or where you feel activated, heart racing. Just noticing, no judgment, just being curious. And then does the, the prompt to then find the more complex story make sense? Like take that simplified story and write out or draw out what feels more the complicated, complex version. So again, if you're writing about what was constricted, what you couldn't fit into, what are the pieces that couldn't fit in? And um, 
how does it help to be able to name all of those things, name the things that don't fit the, the simplified story? Finding a closing for now. For now. Our stories are never finished. They're still emerging, so that's okay. And taking a moment to notice how are you feeling in your body? Are you feeling your body? Again, no, no good thing, no bad thing, just noticing. If you're feeling um, disc really disconnected or out of your body or out of the space you're in or activated or unsafe, then again, just a little orientation to look around your space or touch, or squeeze a few things can help. And we are actually down to our last 10 minutes. We spent a lot of delicious, beautiful time talking, which is so great. Um, and uh, we wanna honor your time. Just really want to celebrate what came up, right? And the importance of, as we've been talking about, like the, the shedding of shame, the coming into embodiment, the accepting of ourselves and our full complexity doesn't happen all at once, one and done, right? It's an ongoing process and so important to celebrate as we go along, like celebrate feeling a moment of clear sailing, of feeling how coming into yourself more, um, having deviated from the norm, of the overlap between awareness and acceptance, this fitting in, not being the same as belonging, um, you know, not either or, but all the bits in between and all around. And just really celebrating those moments of not just insight, but being able to um, feel that, even if just for a moment, especially with other people, not just by ourselves, but with other people and share that with each other. And feel that together. Emma, did you want to say anything? Um, just really appreciate everyone sharing and being here. And um, yeah, thank you. And thanks, Miriam. Thanks, Emma. Oh, super brave. So I just want to name like after doing something like this, like may, you may feel somewhat more open than you have or you do normally or you have recently. Maybe to you, this is like, oh, I'm open like this all the time. So no problem, especially with strangers. But just in case, we often talk about this in Karuna training, there can be kind of a like, you've just expanded, and then a contraction might come in. You're like, okay, now I'm just going to play video games for the rest of the day, or I'm going to Netflix binge, or whatever. You might feel some contraction, right? And to know that that's okay, right? So this contraction expansion that we were playing with earlier, we're not demonizing the simplicity we're not demonizing the contracting, just recognizing these are natural parts of our experience as humans and in our stories. So I want to name that in case you got some uh, vulnerability backlash or shame backwash or things like that afterwards. And just remind us of our confidentiality to protect um, the identities and we'll share the stories. And I'd love to just close with them. Um, something that's often done in, in Tibetan Buddhist communities, a, a dedication of merit. So even if you're not Buddhist, um, this is really just to say that we've, we've actually created a lot of benefit for not just ourselves, but others in this practice. And to dedicate that, we know there are so many people, people who signed up for this program and didn't make it, maybe are watching the recording, and people we know in our lives, people we don't know, who are struggling with so many of these same things. And just to really set the aspiration that as we continue to benefit, that others could benefit too from being together like this. Thank you so much. Hopefully we'll see you again sometime soon in another Karuna training gathering or somewhere else. Um, there are lives that happen monthly. We're doing more and more of these um, two-hour programs and other online offerings. So if you're not on the um, email list for Karuna Training, you might want to sign up so you can get posted. And um, yeah, just pass it to Emma for a final goodbye. You get to say the last thing. Uh, well, thank you guys. Really appreciate you being here. And like I just kind of said, showing up and sharing yourselves and going through the expansion and contraction and that's appreciate it 
Thank you for listening to this Karuna Live audio episode. We hope you have found the episode supportive. If you'd like to attend a free virtual Karuna Live, please visit us at karunatraining.com. Thank you.